the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. That is certainly one of the most important mandates, commandments, really, right? Love the Lord thy God with all their heart, mind, body, soul. Your neighbor is yourself. The great commandment and, of course, the great commission to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that mandate, as we understand, to go into all of the world means beyond just your immediate realm of influence, your sphere of family and friends and co-workers and the barber who cuts your hair, the kid that mows your lawn, all of that. We're also told into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, that becomes a little bit more complicated. Not all of us are going to necessarily go into Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth, but thank God for those that do. And all of us, while maybe not physically traveling and going, nevertheless, I believe, play a very important role in supporting the furtherance of the work of the gospel, either literally, financially, or certainly prayerfully. To get some perspective on what's happening in that Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost, especially the uttermost parts, we're joined today in studio by the founder and president of Reach a Village, Reverend Robert Kraft. And Robert, great to have you with us today. Great to be with you. We should great uh, to be with you. full great. disclosure for listeners. We have a, a long history together, having traveled together many times uh, throughout um, majority parts of Southeast Asia, in Cambodia, and Vietnam, and in Southern China, and all of it um, in the context of working in the mission field. And you, of course, have been there. My goodness, you mentioned to me at lunch that you are just coming up on fifty years of ministry, and a good percentage of that actually working there in the mission field. You got your start in Thailand. We did. Uh, I remember, of course, during the 1970s, I, when I graduated high school, uh, Vietnam was at its peak, and then it began to wind down. The war in Vietnam, I didn't know anything about people in Southeast Asia, and so I felt like I ought to learn. Well, the more I learned, the more I realized they were, you know, like, less than one-tenth, one-percent Christian in many of those countries. And so I said, got to do something. You know, I'm one of those Americans who thought, well, look, if, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to go head that way, you know. And so um, my wife and myself and two little boys in diapers, I sold my car and we headed out to Thailand. That was the only place you could go during those days of the war. It was the only place neutral place in the whole area where it was safe enough to go 
as a missionary. So that's all we did. So as everybody was in Vietnam and Cambodia eager to get back to the United States, you had just the opposite <laughs> idea. I think I've got an inkling to go check out what's going on over there. And of course, uh, now here we sit all of those years later, and what you've had a chance to witness and to fundamentally be a part of has been nothing more than a massive evangelistic paradigm shift. The presence of the gospel, of course, has been in Asia for hundreds of years now. Yes. Um, and there has been different aspects. We were talking earlier off the air about sort of the, 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 the different pivot points um, of the church from the remnant that has survived everything from communism to war to purgings to, in countries like Cambodia, the, the scourge of, of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, um, to missionaries that came in from Europe, predominantly England, to share the gospel, certainly from the United States. And so there, there's these different pivot points of the church that is there today, and that church has been growing at absolutely phenomenal numbers. We don't often hear about what's going on in Vietnam or Cambodia or Thailand outside of maybe an occasional news story here or there, a lot of it related to trade. But help us glimpse kind of the picture of what has happened over the 40-plus years that you have been working in that part of the world and this paradigm shift that has taken place between what had been the traditional approach of uh, learn a language, raise some funds, get on an airplane, move to that part of the world, set up camp, begin to evangelize and do church in Vietnam or Cambodia like we do church in America versus this different model today that is, as opposed to being very Western or American-centric, is actually more locally culturally Centric. Tell us about that. Well, actually, my first glimpse and my first wake-up call happened in 1980 when I saw something that I never dreamed I would see. Like I said, I sold my car to buy the plane tickets, one-way plane <laughs> tickets to Thailand. Yeah, confidence. This is going to have to work <laughs> yeah, out. Well, yeah, this has got to work <laughs> out, Lord. I mean, you know, you've called me this, right? Why do I need a return ticket? So... Uh, so I thought honestly, you know, like, look, if some, if I've got to be the one to do something about this. I mean, God's calling me. I feel it. I, I've seen the need now. I, I've studied and I realized that these people are one tenth of one percent Christian, and and I began to put that in perspective. We moved uh, into Thai, to a place in Thailand in a province where there were about a million people, and I knew all sixty believers. So that's like being in a huge stadium, football stadium, and say, would all the Christians please stand up? And it's just the referees. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's an astounding, overwhelming need. When I first arrived there, it was just overwhelming. I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? I, I can work all my life. And, oh, by the way, you know. Somebody asked me recently, said, when is the first time you ever went into an unreached village and preached the gospel? I said, well, to be honest, once I got there, I realized that uh, from the other missionaries that my first four years had to be language study. And in my second four years, I would become culturally 
adapted enough to be able to share the gospel and fluent enough to talk about spiritual things. Now, I could get around in a taxi cab in Bangkok within a couple of years, but talk deeply about spiritual things? No, no way. So uh, it was a real struggle for me. After uh, 18 months, I was able to give a 10-minute kind of testimony, and that was about it. So, so the whole, like, you know, the, the dreamy idea I had of what missions looked like was very different. Yeah. After I had malaria, after we almost lost our two kids, the reality set in. Do, do you think that tends to be true to this day, that uh, Americans in specific, Westerners in general, tend to sort of have a romanticized uh-huh. idea of what the mission field is all about. I mean, we think about uttermost parts of the earth and going and living amongst the people, new language, new culture. Right. And my goodness, I mean, as you say, with such a small percentile that have been converted, you don't have to look around very hard to find people that need to hear the gospel. Oh, no. So, wow, you're, you're giving water to a thirsty man. They should be welcoming you with welcome arms, open arms, rather. And uh, th- th- this thing should really be fantastic. You're going to be able to send home these amazing reports, and it's going to be phenomenal what takes place. <laughs> uh, and so I wonder, is, is that sort of romanticized version of what – evangelism overseas is like? Does that even persist to this day? Oh, absolutely persists to this day. Um, We live in a complex world, and not only culturally complex, but the language itself and the worldview of people who have never, never even heard of Jesus. All they've done is live in fear of the spirits and bow down and worship idols and all of a sudden you're going to come in and, you know, think that in in a four-minute presentation <laughs> that you're going to have them pray a sinner's prayer and it's going to, like, change everything? It just doesn't work that way. It, it's, it's, far more, it's far more complex than we ever realized. And so once I got there and I realized, oh, my, this language study is tough. And, oh, my. The mosquitoes are bad. Oh, my. You know, so there there becomes this whole list of things that actually are big barriers to you really doing what you felt led to do to come. Um, We've done a lot of research. Only about one out of 1,800 Christians actually go to a foreign or cross-cultural witnessing experience. So we may all say we believe in the Great Commission, but... The first one, the first thing says go. So, I mean, of those who go, even it's tough. All right, so I'm the one in 1800. And I go, and then I'm saying, oh, my goodness, this is tough. And, uh, yeah, it was it was difficult. The language is difficult. The cultural, the environment was difficult. The illnesses we dealt with back 40 years ago. Now, this, this was 40 years ago. So a lot of countries have improved in their – electricity and running water and some 
potable water even. You know, things we take for granted here things in America. Things we take for granted. Kind, kind of cutting-edge technology. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you've just uh, yeah. joined the who conversation. Would, who would have ever thought a flush toilet was cutting-edge uh, technology? Tell me about it, right? Right? Uh, Joining me today in studio, the founder and president of Reach a Village, Bob Kraft, is with us today. And uh, Bob is actually en route heading to Asia as we speak. We've had a chance down through the years to uh, travel together on a number of mission trips. And Bob's sort of field of expertise uh, in the 1040 window has historically been Southeast Asia. We're going to talk a lot today in our conversation about what's going on, particularly, too, about some of the cutting-edge technology that uh, goes beyond running uh, running water, running water. And, uh, and, a, and a switch to turn on the light for electricity, uh, but really gets to the heart of um, – not just methodology, but more important, the yardstick that is used, the methodology used to measure just how effective we are. At the end of the day, when we talk about investment in the kingdom, it's all something that I hope we all engage in doing or have a heartbeat for. But when we do that, do we have any means by which of determining just how effective our efforts really are on behalf of the kingdom. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Bob Kraft, founder and president of Reach a Village. Information, by the way, available on the web at reachavillage.org. That's reachavillage.org. This time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation in studio today with Bob Kraft. Robert Kraft, the founder and president of Reach a Village. And uh, as I mentioned before the break, Bob and I have had an opportunity to uh, uh, to travel lots of parts of uh, Southeast Asia together in Cambodia and Vietnam and certainly in, in Thailand and up along the, the Thai-Burma uh, or Thai-Miramar border. And um, Bob, in all of your years in working there, you've obviously seen dynamic and, and almost um, earth-shaking changes, not only in terms of shifts that happen within politics, certainly, culture to a degree, the influence of everything from technology to um, more common things like materialism and, and all of what that means, but most importantly, part of this paradigm shift that you have been witness to over the last few decades has been a change in the thought and approach to how the church in the West partners with the church in the East. And, of course, historically, and we talked about this over lunch, historically it was, well, we recognize Judea, Samaria, right? We want to go and send, and and, uh, we understand how to do church here, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up what we do here in America, and we're going to transport it into insert name of country here, and we'll show them how we do church. And they'll form Sunday school classes, and they'll get, of course, their discipleship training program, or we call it membership here, and uh, they'll build a church, and everything is going to be great, and then we'll just copy this along the way. And certainly for many centuries, that has been the approach, not always, however, necessarily finding the results in harmony or in sync with the investment of time and effort and energy. You spoke before the break about four years learning the language, four more years learning the culture to get to the point where you not only felt 
confident enough to right. share, right? But had also obtained permission enough, yes, to be able to share. And um, some people might hear that and say, "Wow, eight years just to get up to speed." There's got to be a more efficient way of doing this. Well, there is a more efficient way, uh, but it doesn't involve you. <laughs> if you want to try to do any kind of shortcutting, what I learned early on. I was in country in 1980 in Thailand, and I had gone with a a Thai elder up into the mountains to a Lisu tribe, and uh, very small, only about uh, six or seven people ever met with us in the hut uh, that we went to to have Bible studies. There was a lead man in in the village, and he would gather a few people together. Some of them were believers, some were just listening. And so I, I loved it. I thought, this is it. This is, you know, pioneer evangelism like I thought I would be doing. And the Thai elder was, of course, the one who had the Thai language, and he could speak, uh, the uh, Lisu villager could speak Thai as a trade language. So actually, uh, it was already being handled in another language that wasn't even native to the man who took me, who was from 40 kilometers away, 25 miles away from this Lisu village. Anyway, we were sitting there one one time when uh, I noticed there was a new face in the crowd. And there was a young man sitting over against the wall, leaning against the wall, and uh, part of the circle of Bible study. And uh, so I asked my Thai friend, because I don't speak any Lisu at that point, barely speak enough Thai to converse. And I'm, I'm talking to my Thai friend, the Thai elder who had taken me up there. And I said, find out who this young man is. And... And uh, you know what his name is, and then you know let's make sure he feels welcome. And 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 to my surprise, the young man leans forward. He says, "That's quite all right, brother." <laughs> I speak English. Why don't you just speak English today, and I'll translate straight into Lisu? Wow. Yeah, seminary trained mm-hmm. from Burma had come over the mountain into Thailand to reach the Lisu people on this side of the mountain, the Thai side of the mountain. And I'm sitting here saying, well, Lord, why'd you send me here if you had this seminary-trained guy just across the other side of the mountain? But it showed that God was calling people from nearby cultures, related cultures, to bridge that gap. And I thought to myself, even then, that that was my first big revelation. That was within 18 months. The light bulb has switched on. The bulb came on. on. I said, okay, this is one job I don't have to worry about. You know, there are other things I can do, but, you know, how can I help these people succeed? This young man had a vision to reach the Lisu people on the Thai side of the mountain, to reach them, start a Bible study, send them out to plant churches among the Lisu. I found out he had helped translate the Lisu Bible. He had been part of the translation team of the, the Lisu hymnal. So we're, we're talking about a very capable, skilled a disciple of Jesus and, and who was feeling, willing to share it. And you're feeling very out of your league at well, this I'm point, saying, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, boy. You know, all I did was get a Bible college education. And, and the point of comparison, to put this into perspective for uh, listeners to our conversation today, Bob, we, we've seen, for example, this this growing degree at which there are fewer and fewer people that share a commonality 
um, a starting point, if you will, of truth. What do I mean by that? Well, yeah. for example, going back to a generation or two ago, um, it could be safely assumed that most people believe that there was a truth. They may not be convinced of what that truth is, but they were on some sort of a pathway or a journey to find, find that truth. truth. That is correct. And that for a good percentile of Americans, that there was a familiarity with the existence of God, or at least a belief that he existed, may not know what he looked like, and was that God Roman Catholic, Protestant, don't know, but looking into all of it. Compare that with where we are today, where increasing percentages of Americans aren't sure that truth exists. And when you go to approach them, say, from a Christian perspective to share your faith and say, good news, God's got a plan for you, they say to you, I don't even know that God exists. Yeah, right. So all of a sudden, many of the, the, the foundational presumptions that we could sort of use as building blocks right. – let me sketch out for you the four spiritual laws, and here you are on the chair, and where is God in relationship to you? Well, I, I don't even know that God exists for me to be worried about a relationship. I share that to say that it's demonstrative, I think, of the challenge that missionaries face mm-hmm. in that it's not just the language that you have to overcome or even the culture per se but entirely different ways of thinking and entirely different concepts about who God is. Go to the Muslim world, there's one concept. Travel to the Hindu world, and they say, God, well, certainly I'm familiar with God. We have 330 million of them. Right, which one? Which one? <laughs> so it, it, this, is, this is interesting because so long historically, we've taken the Western approach to doing Eastern missions work with less than stellar results. Uh, that is no clearer than in Thailand. Really? 195 years of missionary work and wonderful pioneer missionaries, people who, who, like me, were willing to die if we had to, to see the Thai people reach. And yet, the statistics were, just three years ago, the statistics were that there were 5,000 churches, but those 5,000 churches were only in 3,000-plus villages, of the 85,000 villages of Thailand oh <laughs> after 195 years. So, you know, who of us would not kind of lean back and say, maybe we should do something different? Yeah, if you were running an American corporation traded <laughs> on the stock market and you were talking about the number of <laughs> units sold and market penetration uh, and, and percentage of, of uh, you know, market share against our competition, you might look at that and say – it's probably time to close shop here because this is not working out uh, so well. Something's not working. But a, a, a young Burmese man who is a, a wonderful evangelist within Burma, um, Myanmar as it's called now, he said this very amazing thing to me just a few years ago. It's about 10 years ago he said this. I thought it was brilliant. He said, Christianity was brought to us like a potted plant. It had its shape already. It had the pot already. And we had no idea how it would grow if we stuck it in native soil. Wow. Ah. Wow. So what what often we have done with bringing a Western perspective into an Eastern mind 
or even our own worldview from the West into an Eastern worldview where there is no God. And they're stuck in this endless cycle of recycling their reincarnation, as Mm -hmm. they call it. It's totally incompatible with how they even think. So the message needs to be carefully worded, and you need to understand that mindset. So what he said was brilliant. If we taper it so much, I call it bonsai Christianity. Mm-hmm. Many of you know a bonsai plant, you know, right? It may be 400 years old, but it's about two feet mm-hmm. tall. It's, it's stunted. It has a huge trunk, beautiful little tiny leaves, no fruit, usually nothing. <laughs> uh, and he said Christianity was brought here like a potted plant. But when we took the gospel, the heart, the essence of the presence of God and the gospel message that he has come to redeem us and have a relationship with us. When we took that and put it in native soil, we put it in the native mindset, we put it in the native worldview, and we planted the seed of the gospel, it's 40 feet tall. Well, you know and, what I mean? And what a beautiful illustration because the notion of I mean, the, the bonsai, it's not that the tree is necessarily a dwarf tree no. to begin with. No. But you are restricting its growth by constantly trimming it and shaping it. You <laughs> exactly. also restrict its growth by keeping it into a very small pot. pot. And it becomes, for those that are gardeners in the audience, root-bound. And we know now that it can't grow any further because it's not able to access enough nourishment to grow because it's so overwhelmed by the roots. You have a limitation in the number of nutrients because there's limited soil. Extract the pot. Trim off some of that old dead root, plant it in soil where it has a chance to lay down fresh roots deep and wide, and suddenly the two-foot bonsai plant becomes a 200-foot giant oak. It can. The DNA is there. The DNA is there. The DNA of the gospel is to multiply, to be able to actually reach into every village, to reach into every person's heart and transform them. It has that power. So the DNA of the gospel is just as powerful for anyone in the world, any single culture, any person who opens themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel can be transformed, equally transformed. And and it's fascinating because we we can contextualize Christianity in terms of its length. Christ was here 2,000 years ago. There were 12 disciples. They went into all the world. Mm. Um, So it, it has lasted and reached very long. I think where maybe sometimes our short-sightedness is not recognizing just how wide it can and should be. That's right. How wide the potential is. And this is really about, at the end of the day, realizing the full growth, the full potential of the impact. When Jesus said, go into all the world, you notice that's not a self-limiting statement. He didn't say, go into San Francisco only. Go into California only or only go to the United Go into all of the world with that sense that the, the reach would be long and wide. And we understand a little something about the, the long part. Now beginning to understand how the wide and, and in what fashion the wide, therein lies the real key. With us today in studio is the founder and president of Reach a Village, Reverend Robert Kraft. We're talking about... Uh, the amazing things that God is doing in the 1040 window, um, and, and in particular, Bob's years of work on the mission field 
what he's seen, experienced, his role in contributing to uh, the reach there, but, but most importantly, seeing how that when you are willing to crack open the pot, right. plant down that tree into some native soil, and let it do its thing, amazing things can be the result. We'll come back to more of that conversation. Information on the web, reachavillage.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Reverend Robert Kraft, founder, president of Reach a Village. Information on the web at reachavillage.org. That's reachavillage.org. We're talking a bit about uh, the perspective of many, many years, 195 years of the presence of the influence of Western missionaries in Thailand um, and the fact that for all of those years... You would think, gee, we can come back and say, we're like Coca-Cola. Everybody knows who we are. Um, but some of the research, some of the the raw numbers bore out and told a very different story in terms of the penetration of the gospel. Uh, and actually, you can look on the web and, and see it for yourself by going to ThaiChurches.org, ThaiChurches.org. Um, the man behind that is Mr. Dwight Martin. He's a researcher and an IT guy, and he began to break down Thailand into places that are reached, unreached, villages that have churches are shown by dots, and then all of those spaces in between have no churches. And so uh, it began to show the true picture of Christianity within Thailand. And uh, Dwight then was asked to become the official statistician for the Thai church. And they have, over the last few years, tried to begin to have a strategy of filling in the dark spots, you know, where there are no churches. And uh, that's kind of where we fit in with Reach a Village. Reaching, reaching the nearby villages is one of those strategies whereby you begin to saturate. Because we often go by the the Matthew version of the Great Commission, which talks about go into into all the world, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We use that version, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. But we forget about the other versions that says, take the gospel to every living creature. Every single human being has a right to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's happened to us is we're kind of like a, a – more of a mentality of a business. Say, okay, we've got we, we've got one of our stores in that town. That's big enough. You know, we've got a store there. So let them come to us. But that, that's not it at all. Jesus said, go and make sure that every person hears. And how can you do that at a level of even making the gospel available? Well, and, and, you know, I, I would, to continue your, your sort of business analogy there, I, I would say that anybody that's involved as, as a, an aggressive entrepreneur or an right. experienced entrepreneur would say, look, one of the keys to growing a successful business is to go into a community and determine what the needs are. Yes. So, in other words, you, you might be a big fan of Chick-fil-A, 
But if you come into town and find out that there are eight square blocks and there are five Chick-fil-A's, opening up a, a sixth franchise <laughs> is, is probably not going to be a real key to success. But if you discover, guess what? There's no good steakhouse in this town. We're going to open up a good steakhouse. Now, I say that not to disparage Chick-fil-A or steakhouses. <laughs> we eat a cow or, or, or a chicken, whatever whatever tickles your fancy. But the illustrative point there is... If you take the Western approach and just say, this is what we have to serve, this is what we're going to deliver, right? as opposed to, we're here to determine what your needs are and what we can do to assist, in this example, the local church right. be effective, that does not have the barrier of four years of having to study the language, four years of studying the culture to kind of get ready to get started, but are already there in country boots on ground, ready to rock and roll, so to speak. What they're lacking is some motivation, discipleship training, some of the tools. And, of course, historically, we've just gone in and said, this is how we do it, so this is how we're going to make you do it. And that hasn't had a good track record. Uh, Not in Thailand especially, but in many places you can see a parallel, that that it's not that effective. Uh, We, as I said, Dwight Martin, and he's part of Reach a Village, he does the research on everything, uh, the, the Christian growth of Thailand, from missionary perspective and from local congregational perspective. So uh, the statistics tell us that it takes an average missionary seven years to plant one church. So if there's 80,000 villages... Uh, how many missionaries is it going to take to reach Thailand? You're there for 21 years, which is almost a lifetime. Yeah, and, and there's and three maybe three you're churches. lucky you've planted three churches. You got it. You got it. Wow. And so, we still have 79,900 right. to go. So when you do the numbers, when you just look at the numbers, you, you let the number, as, as Dwight says, he's a researcher, he says, the data speaks to me. <laughs> Let the numbers tell the story. Let the numbers tell the story. Mm-hmm. We've got to do something differently. And it Whereas, isn't to say that the gospel is not effective. No, it's just the, the methodology that we've been using to deliver it that has met, met some challenges. Absolutely. It's the methodology as part of that. Uh, uh, for example, we're looking at now, within an 18-month period, a local congregation using local people and resources they have developed to minister to their neighboring villages, they can plant a house church in a village in about 18 months. Wow. And so, and then it just keeps repeating. So if you have enough people doing that, when we first started working with the uh, Free in Jesus Christ Church Association, that's their name in Thailand, we first started working with them. They had about 13 churches, and that was since 1987. So from 1987 until three years, three and a half years ago, the beginning of 2017, so three years ago, they had 13 churches. And to go from that to today, they've reached almost 800 villages in those three years. So the, and these are people who had never heard the name of Jesus before. So the initial model matched the statistics of, on average, about a church every seven years. Exactly. 
Exactly. And you talk about 18 years and say, well, gee, they've got that many tests. It's about that. Yeah, they're, they're, according to the old methodology, that's that's just about on track. And that was without a missionary. That was just indigenous people doing it like they had been taught to do it. And, and you know, the, the challenging thing here is if we were talking about static results, um, that might be one thing. Mm-hmm. But what is constantly ever-changing is – generations come and generations go, and what you're essentially saying is that there have been huge swaths of generations that have gone unreached. Now, I'm not, let me quickly say, I'm not discounting the Romans 1 at all, that God will, in his way, his fashion, his time, reveal himself to each and every one that none should perish. So be clear about that. But from meeting of the evangel mandate to go into yes. all the world right. to to engage in in the great commandment the great commission rather um, has shown us coming up sorely lacking that you're talking about multiple generations that could be in a village and never once having been visited by a missionary by or an evangelist or a church planter not even a, a local one yeah so part of the strategy here is then to mobilize and help the the locals mobilize into the nearby villages. So this isn't, let's come to you and say, here's what we want to do for you. This is, we're here to ascertain what you need. Right. So that you, as a local individual, already having command of language and culture, because it's your town, your people, what can we do to help you become more effective at reaching your community for Christ? That's right. How can we enhance? How can we accelerate? what you're already doing, what you already know. We see your transformed lives. We see your passion. We see your motivation. It's coming from God. He's calling you to witness and to share your your faith with your, uh, with your relatives and your neighbors and your friends and then go over the next mountain to the next village. Does so that, we can see that. We does, can see it. Does that also suggest, Robert, that there needs to be a sense of fluidity about this. And I ask that question because if the approach is, what tools can we give you to make you more effective, um, I would imagine that might change from not just culture to culture, but even maybe from village to village. This one says, hey, we're doing great on the evangelistic side. We've got a lot of people coming to Christ, but we really need help in discipleship training. So then once they come, they stay. Right. So does there have to be a sense of fluidity that it can't be one size fits all? Absolutely. And one of the keys we found in the Thai movement, so going from 13 churches to 800 in three years, one of the key factors was we, we came alongside, and I've seen this in Cambodia so, and seen it in Myanmar, so I knew. I knew where they were in their s- state of need. And I said, they're going to want to write their own materials, and we're going to help them. So Dwight in Thailand has a print-on-demand technology. So he can actually create booklets. We can check. We can test 50 booklets on, on a village that they write themselves. Former Buddhists have written these materials because they speak to the people in the worldview and mindset Mm -hmm. that they have Mm -hmm. and the culture. So we'll print a test, and they'll say, oh, oh, we found that this passage of Scripture is, is really resonating with people. And let's be sure to put a lesson on this passage in there. 
Okay, the next edition of 50, you put that passage in. And it allows the discernment of the Holy Spirit and the interactive way the Holy Spirit is discipling people in their spiritual formation process. It allows, as you said, fluidity. That's a good word. Flexibility, fluidity. And those are things we haven't really had in the past. No, there's been sort of a create a model, work the model. Work the model. Repeat the model. Uh, but what you're suggesting here is the ability to sort of on the fly adapt and modify in order to um, really create an environment where you get, for want of a better term, the most bang for the buck, the greatest degree of effectiveness. Interesting you'd use that word. Now think about this. Why would we take – and this is no offense against people who may use this evangelistic method. But why in the world would you name an evangelistic method – evangelism explosion in a country where there's 40,000 landmines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's the that's our kind of thinking mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. you you described it precisely. Mm-hmm. We come up with a method or a system or a set of materials and then we just kind of say, "Okay, this has worked here, it worked in this country, it worked here in in my neighborhood, so it's going to work in Thailand." And we think it's just a matter of of linguistic translation when there's so much more oh, to it. Oh, so than that. much more than that. Yeah. You know. So much more than that. So, Rob, yeah, you're on, you're on target, brother. Robert Kraft is with us today in studio. He, of course, the founder and president of ReachAVillage.org. That's ReachAVillage.org. When we come back, we'll talk about a recent article in Christianity Today where this methodology of not just flexibility but the measurement of success in the growth of the gospel caught the attention of Christianity Today. Robert Kraft, reachavillage.org. That's reachavillage.org.